folks, seasons, greetings, happy holidays, and Merry Christmas. Welcome to episode 15 of Feelin' Lit, a very special episode indeed. I'm your host, Christine Bohm, and this marks our finale to the first season of Feelin' Lit. And in honor of the first season's conclusion, we've got a holiday special for you. Uh, today, I'm delighted to be joined by a gentleman who may very well personify Christmas here on Long Island. Beyond his iconic portrayal of Ebenezer Scrooge at Theater 3 in Port Jefferson, he also acts as the inspired artistic director for the very same theater company. Uh, I'm honestly tickled pink to hear more about his history as a performer, director, producer, list goes on. It's Mr. Jeffrey Sanzel. Hello, Mr. Sanzel. Hello, Ms. Bohm. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Should we dive right in? Please. Alrighty, uh, would you mind giving us a rundown of when you started with theater and then maybe specifically going into Long Island theater in particular? Well, I pretty much did theater my whole life. I mean, I directed my first production in first grade, Hansel and Gretel, and I played the witch and the stepmother as well. <laughs> Wonderful. It kind of set me on that course. You know, I did it right through, you know, elementary, middle, and high school. I went to college at Purchase uh, for acting and directing. I taught for two years in a Catholic school, which is where I did my first Christmas Carol in 1988. And then I came to Theater 3 in 1989. I'm originally from upstate New York. I'm from Rochester. But uh, my college apartment mate Eric Paper had started his career in high school as an actor at Theater 3 and he connected me with Theater 3 when I was looking to leave my teaching position and he's really the one who introduced me to Bradley Bing, Jerry Friedman and Brent Erlinson and that's how I came to Theater 3 and I've been there ever since so since 1989. What part of Rochester were you from? Uh, Brighton. Brighton, okay, gotcha. They're the Spencerport, P Pittsburgh? Grace. Yeah, gr okay, oh, got Pittsburgh, yes. Yes. Yeah. What was the scene like uh, in the in the early 90s on Long Island? There were fewer theaters then. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's been a huge growth in the number of theaters of various sizes, you know, ranging from, you know, large theaters uh, that seat 400 plus to now we have a lot of theaters, these wonderful little intimate houses that seat 50, 60, 100. So it was, the landscape was thinner at that time. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, with the growth of theater, we have, of course, the thinning of the talent pool because it spreads it way out. What were some of your favorite theater experiences, either perhaps as an actor, director, or producer in, in the expanse of time you've had in the Long Island scene? Oh, well, me personally, you know, at Theater 3, one of the first things I did uh, was The Boys Next Door, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite plays of all time. Mm -hmm. And I, I got an opportunity to do a production of that. I was really happy with that. And that was in my early years at Theater 3. Of course, I started with Christmas Carol at Theater 3 in 1989. And um, that's kind of been central to both my personal and artistic life ever since. Also, back when I first came to the island, I went to a lot more theater. Sure. Uh, I came as children's theater coordinator, so I had a little bit more time to go around. Uh, one of the best productions I ever saw was at the old studio, uh, Come Back to the Five and Dying, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. It was just, it was one of those performances that I looked at, and I was really blown away by the level of acting and directing that was done. Uh, there was another production I remember seeing of Stepping Out. Mm-hmm about the adult dance class. That was another really wonderful experience uh, that I, you know, outside of Theater 3. Obviously, as, as I moved up the ladder at Theater 3, my time narrowed. I do still try to get out and see other productions, but it's harder. 
Sure. Starting off, I guess, who were some of your artistic inspirations, um, maybe on the island or just globally? Oh, well, certainly at Theater 3, I learned a lot from the people who brought me in. Bradley mm -hmm. Bing, who I still work with, uh, was artistic director when I came, and he still directs for us. Uh, most recently, he did an absolutely beautiful production of The Miracle Worker. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry Friedman, who was one of the founding members whose granddaughter now works for us. She's actually rehearsing one of our offstage online pieces. Oh, wow. Uh, Ronnie Pyrels, uh, who was very, very involved. Uh, Ronnie has since uh, passed away, but his son and I actually have collaborated on multiple children's shows. Uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant composer. And he actually, when we did my original play, Where There's a Will on the main stage, he wrote a song for it. And then, of course, Brent Erlinson, who was the associate artistic director when I came and he's the person I've worked with so closely for so much of the time because he wrote the songs to all the children's shows that we wrote together. Ellen Mitchell Moore, who was the musical director, uh, was absolutely brilliant musician who then started acting and was a wonderful actor and was a very, very good friend and a very gifted artist. We lost Ellen as well a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And then it's the support of people you don't say well that's not an artistic person but they are somebody like Vivian Katrakis our managing director who I rely very heavily on for her point of view uh, Vivian was the champion of Christmas Carol of bringing it back and that happened actually prior to my hiring and I think she is the staunchest supporter of theater three and of my work personally mm -hmm. and she's somebody I can trust and go to and over the years I've had a lot of people as support um, you know incredible designers uh, currently I have Randy Parsons as scenic designer and Robert Henderson as lighting designer and they go beyond just their input in those areas they understand the art of theater and they also understand what we can do and what we can't do and know how to get us beyond our limitations. Uh, Doug Quatrix, my artistic associate, I work with him quite a bit. Melissa Troxler, uh, our stage manager, is one of my co-producers on Offstage Online. And she's another one who has an amazing aesthetic. I've had stage managers whose aesthetics are as good as any of the actors, designers, directors. Maureen Spanos uh, worked with me for a long time and I relied on her so much so i have had a lot of support and then you know i can't even begin on the list of actors sure um the one thing i will say and i, I hear this from other artistic directors and i don't agree well we're going to bring so and so in from the city we're very excited this person's coming in from the city and i take nothing away from that but i will say the actors i've worked with on long island are as good as anybody i've seen brought in and in many cases much better i feel that the quality of actor that we have in our productions and that I've seen at other theaters is exceptional. And I also find the professionalism to be extraordinary. The commitment to the time and energy and the work. I mean, you think about a lot of these people have other jobs. They mm -hmm. work a full day, as you know, Christine, and then they come to us in the evening and they work for four hours straight. And then they go home, study their lines, work the next day and come back prepared for that following rehearsal. So I am so amazed at the quality 
and the integrity of the Long Island actor. It becomes almost a, a great deal more special for those actors working those full-time jobs because they're there because they truly, it's it's for the passion of, of the art form. And I think that that's, that creates something very authentic and unique. I agree. And also I loved uh, the touting of many folks behind the scenes uh, fulfilling artistic inspiration for you. A lot of you know, folks that necessar don't necessarily get the, the spotlight, so to speak, but it's wonderful, the conglomeration of folks that make up uh, your inspiration. So that was great to hear. And that continues. You never know where somebody starts and where they're going to end. A uh, perfect example is Andy Markowitz, who's our board president. He came to us because his daughter was playing Tiny Tim in A Christmas Carol. Gotcha. And this is many, many years ago. And he just kind of stayed. He went onto the board, he became the board president, which he served, um, I think coming on 20 years, maybe even past 20 years now. And uh, he's also uh, assisted me on main stage productions. And again, it's somebody who didn't start in that position, but again, has grown to it and brings incredible insight. Mm -hmm. I can rely on the people around me to say that works or that doesn't work. And again, I've been doing this long enough that, you know, Yes, I have a healthy ego, um, <laughs> as you have to, but I have no problem listening to somebody's suggestion and giving it a try and also giving credit to the people who deserve the credit. And I'm sure I've left off so many people. Again, another reason I will not name actors. <laughs> it, it's so hard. It's so hard. And you've worked with so many, I'm sure. We think about the span of Christmas Carol and how many iterations of casts you've had throughout the years. And I'm oh. sure, yeah, many, many folks. <laughs> yes, Offstage Online, which is our Zoom series, we've had over 120 actors now. Good gracious. And the majority of them have been people who've worked for us. We've had a few people who are people I've always wanted to work with. And it never worked out, so this was an opportunity to do that. But, you know, just in this project alone, you know, we've had that many actors. I, I've worked with thousands of actors from as young as six to as old as, you know, late 80s. Bringing it back to, to Christmas Carol, I've got quite a few questions about your process there, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. Um, so I, I guess what I'm most curious about is what changes for you each year um, in the production, and I guess what stays the same? Things that you change, things that you keep, how does that process grow and how do you keep it alive? Well, if you look at Christmas Carol from 1989 to now, the resemblance is very thin. Um, <laughs> I start actually, I should say 1988 was the first Christmas Carol I did, and that was when I was teaching. I did a student faculty production that was like a 35, 40 minute production, mm -hmm. you know, very truncated, but it kind of set me on the path. And then when I came to the theater, they had announced that they were doing it. They had taken five years off and were going back to it. And through various permutations, I ended up directing it. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't slated to do it, but it kind of fell into my lap, which was very lucky. And I worked with a guy named Bill Van Horn, who really knew Christmas Carol, really knew Dickens. And it was that Nicholas Nickleby approach, very textual, very mm -hmm. straight theater ensemble. So I worked with him on that, and he had a great deal of input. And then over the next few years, I moved into a more narrative uh, structure. I guess it was about continuing to return to the text, but also look at everything I possibly could. I watched every movie version. I've looked at every piece of fan fiction, every adaptation, every TV special. I literally have bookcases and bookcases of things that relate to Christmas Carol that I continue to go back to 
And then while we're working on it, it's still a living process. Mm -hmm. I remember one year I had an idea for something very small. So at warm-ups, uh, we were already three, four weeks into the run. I asked the cast, which had many veterans in it, uh, could you guys try something for me in the warm-ups? I just want to see what this sounds like. And they did it. And I said, okay, that's good. I'll put it in next year. They looked at me and said, well, we can do it today. And they did. So we put it in that day. Mm -hmm. um, there were pieces that I was looking to introduce this year that I was working on with them last year. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to revamp the opening of the play, which I haven't touched in years. So they worked with me several days on it during the run. You know, um, sometimes I'll go back to the book and one line will jump out at me and I'll say, oh, that's what that's about. And it helps me re-envision a piece. The big turning point came a good number of years ago when I had the inspiration for the want child to be threaded through the entire production. That's, That's our right. signature piece. And that actually came to me while I was on stage during a performance. And I thought, what if? And I worked on it throughout the year and then introduced it that next year. And that has been our consistent piece, is that image that separates us from all the other Christmas carols, perhaps. I mean. There are always going to be things that are interconnected with all Christmas carols. That's the piece that I think makes ours a little different. Obviously, over the years, I fleshed out Scrooge's history, which mm -hmm. many of the versions do. You know, we give causality, which is a very 20th century mentality. Mm -hmm. Many of the productions, like ours, make Fan an older sister. In the book, she's a little sister. Mm -hmm. By making her an older sister and having... Fan and Scrooge's mother die in childbirth and Scrooge's father rejection of him, you know, the, the whole causality, you know, um, and why he rejects his nephew the same way his own father rejected him, etc. You know, again, 20th century, we love our Freud nature of it. Plus, you know, people will come up with ideas. People have suggestions and I'm willing to try it. The voices piece at the end of act one, that came about in a gradual process and it looked one way for many years until all of a sudden I realized it was wrong. Mm -hmm. I had inverted it and I changed it the next year, adding additional voices, grounding Scrooge at center. Yes. It used to be everybody around and I would move to them. And I realized I wasn't creating the chaos in his mind. So that's when I put him at the desk, put everybody around, had everybody moving. That's when I added um, the kids in the choir uh, singing during that. So it became almost a four part piece. But again, if I hadn't started with the first piece, I would have gotten to the second. If I hadn't had actors who had complete faith in theater three's Christmas Carol, I would have never would have gotten there. Mm -hmm. The actors who work with us on Christmas Carol, whether it's their first year or their 15th year, whether they're in the children's cast or the adult cast, they're on board for whatever is thrown out at them. Janet being pregnant was not my idea. Oh. Um, there were a number of years that I used to have a free-for-all rehearsal with the more advanced cast people who had done it. And I said, you can do anything you want at this rehearsal. Anything you decide, and it's you're free to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, Sari Feldman, who was playing Belle and Janet, uh, Fred's wife, came out pregnant and it clicked and I thought there's the full circle well that was not my idea mm -hmm. that was completely her idea 
We put it in that year. We redesigned the costume to accommodate a pregnancy pillow, and it's become an integral part of the play. But that was an actor's contribution. There are lines in the play that were actors' contributions. There are moments that other people came up with that went from sotto voce ad-libs to text. And by the same token, over the years, things I've added, I've said, nope, that has to go. The Christmas morning, uh, where it's all song and pantomime, just came about four or five years ago. There used to be all kinds of dialogue there that I had written, and I realized it was really terrible dialogue. I had written some <laughs> awful dialogue, and what happened was they were rehearsing carols in the lobby, and there was one carol I heard, and I was like, what if I took out all the dialogue, and they were singing that, and we saw Scrooge move from person to person, and we just saw that in pantomime. Mm-hmm. And again, I brought everybody up on stage. They had no idea what I was doing. I said, I want you to stand here and do this. this. I reworked it, reworked it, still reworking it years later. Um, uh, we had a musical director, Will Roselack, who came in, who took Ellen Mitchell Moore's score, which we had used for years, and he organized it, and he put in a few new pieces, and one was for the Christmas morning. So everybody contributes. Randy Parsons and Robert Henderson contribute. When we went to the new set for our 20th anniversary, 25th anniversary, uh, we spent an entire year, Robert, Randy, and Neil Creighton, who was our TD and I, talking about what that new set would be. That's the one you see now. Sure. And how it changed the movement of the play. So it's ever-evolving, and I hope it will continue to evolve. I work on this all year round. Um, as one uh, Bob Cratch equipped when he came to my house, he said... He looked at all of the things on the shelves and said, ah, the Jew who loved Christmas, Carol. (laughs) It sounded like a demented Hallmark special. Um, So it is is a real central part of my universe. Mm -hmm. And it speaks volumes, certainly the the cast that you've mentioned that are just so willing to to maintain uh, malleability when it comes to the direction and trying things. And again, to the professionalism of folks on the Long Island scene, being able to be as adaptable as changing things day of. Yeah, and you know, we, we try not to do that very much. Sure. We try, you know, what's nice with that too is it's on its feet within a week. Mm-hmm. You know, we start with the adults, we get them going, and then we bring in the kids because the kids are split cast. We have 18 kids, not young actors, split nine and nine. Sure. So it's a process, but we usually have a good two, two and a half weeks of just running the show. Um, which is really nice. And of course, the set is kept in storage and put in so we get more time on the set. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very well-oiled machine, which I, I'm very lucky with that. Uh, and I'm very lucky that I've had so many people willing to come back year after year. I mean, it's there are weeks that we do 10, 11, and 12 performances. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, folks that still maintain, I'm sure, uh, jobs and to some, some extent outside of the production. Yes. Mm-hmm. That one's a little hard because it's sure. just matinees four days a week and then the evening and weekend shows. It's a lot. But some of them do. Some of them do. Uh, you'd spoken about seeing every iteration uh, on, on, on the screen. Do you have any favorite uh, cinematic versions of Christmas Carol? Oh. Absolutely. The George C. Scott, the 1984 TV version uh, that Roger O'Hurston, who actually wrote Pippin, wrote the teleplay for, that was the one that by far influenced me the most. Alistair Sim is beautiful, both 
the black and white film, and he made an animated cartoon that Chuck Jones produced, which is a beautiful 25-minute version. I'm very fond of the Henry Winkler in American Christmas Carol. Gotcha. I think you can take something from every one of the versions. There are very, very few that I looked at and said, well, there is not one thing I learned from this. There are a couple, but, you know, <laughs> you look at what's interesting with the Henry Winkler is he doesn't really think he's a bad guy. Sure. You know, and it's so interesting. And he is so surprised and shocked and destroyed by seeing his name on the grave. He doesn't understand. It's so interesting. Each one brings something different to it. Uh, coming up, I'm very much looking forward to the uh, Jefferson Mays one-man version yes. that's uh, going to be broadcast very soon. I, I can't imagine it's anything short of brilliant. Patrick Stewart's one-man show I saw twice in New York uh, and listened to every year. I mean, I have I have dozens of audio versions and readings of the book, both cut and uncut, and I binge on them every year starting usually in September. Gotcha. I'm To be honest, I'm a little surprised you didn't mention The Muppets Christmas Carol. That was certainly my favorite. I like The Muppets Christmas Carol very, very much. I think Michael King does a beautiful job. My problem is he changes immediately. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. He Ghost of Christmas Present arrives and he's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait. What do you have to show me? I'm so excited. And I think that undermines the gradual growth. I think he's great in the beginning. I think Kermit the Frog is the definitive Bob Cratchit. Yes! I think, I think artistically it's beautiful. I think Christmas Past it could not be... It evokes what Dickens wrote in so many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, present, future, it's all there. I mean, some of it's a little strange, but it's wonderful. The old Joe as a spider is genius. It's Unsettling. Genius. Mm -hmm. No, I, I do like it very much. Um, but my issue is the choice of making Scrooge so easily happy so quickly. Sure. I think my favorite portion of that movie as a whole is you, you don't ever see Michael Caine acting with Muppets. He's just acting with scene partners. Oh, yeah. But, you know, again, if you, you can look at the TV show and you see the actors who are more comfortable relating to them as people. Sure. As opposed to the ones who are standing there waiting for the puppet to finish talking. <laughs> But again, you know, you could say that about a lot of actors we work with who just wait for their lines to come up. Absolutely. Well, speaking of scene partners, um, any memorable moments with scene par partners, either within A Christmas Carol or just productions you've worked with uh, as an actor? Oh, Lord, yes. I mean, I've worked with so many, so many wonderful actors. I mean, I think about just the actors who've played Belle mm -hmm. over the years, you know, as I, you know, because I play young Scrooge as well. And obviously, I've gotten older, but the Bells have kind of stayed the same age. Sure. And it's, it can be a little weird. And, you know, there's that ick factor. And even though we keep it very, you know, very staid and all of that, each Bell that I've had brings a different quality to it. And we find something different. And I think about, like, the last two Bells I had, Nicole Bianco and Meg Bush, two very different actors who each found something very different and brought out something different in me. So I'm very, very lucky. You know, Doug Quattruck has been my Bob Cratchit the majority of the Christmas Carols. We, we've had different Bob Cratchits over the years, some really wonderful Bob Cratchits, but, you know, he's a definitive Bob Cratchit and he's mm -hmm. a terrific scene partner. Yeah, I, it, let me put it this way. I've worked with more good actors and generous actors 
than the opposite. Generosity is an interesting quality to, to bring up when, in regards to scene partnering. Uh, often forgot, uh, forgotten trait, I think, for scene partners. Now, let me ask you a question. You, know, you, you do a lot of directing. Mm-hmm. Have you direct, done where you directed and acted as well? I have not. So I, that is something I wanted to ask you about uh, as well regarding Christmas Carol. How does how does that process change for you? That you know what, it's harder on them than it is on me, and that's why I was asking if ever had the experience because mm-hmm. there are times, especially in rehearsal, I'm not in the play. Yeah, I'm talking to you because I can do the lines, but I'm looking over your shoulder to see what's going on stage right and what's going on in the wings and why didn't that move in and that cup is wrong and that light is out. <laughs> Um, you know, there is a a multitasking, but the problem is sometimes it takes me out of the play. Mm -hmm. And there was an entire year that I was performing that I realized I was not fully present for the actors on stage. Mm -hmm. And that really was unfair. And I went in the next year, (laughs) a reformed Scrooge, as far as that went, to try to be more present but it is hard. And I, you know, and then there are times when literally I will go out in the house and do my lines because I want to see what the picture looks like. Mm-hmm. So these people have to face where I would be standing and they're getting the voice from across the auditorium, knowing I'm taking notes, talking to the lighting designer, talking to the costumer, you know, and mm-hmm. throwing the lines out. So it's a very bizarre process. Again, it's a tribute to their patience that they don't go ballistic. What's a piece of direction um, throughout your your time working as a director that you've given that you're maybe most proud of? One of the most satisfying experiences I've had beginning to end was Next to Normal. Um, I saw it in New York uh, five or six times. Wow. I, I thought it was one of the most brilliant, beautiful, powerful pieces of theater, and I desperately wanted to do it. The day MTI released it, I applied for the rights and had them within two hours, and we actually changed our spring show to put it in. I got the most brilliant, perfect cast, and every single rehearsal of that was a joy. Every single rehearsal moved it forward. Ellen Mitchell-Moore was the musical director. Uh, She worked with them first while I was directing another show. So by the time I walked into the rehearsal hall, they knew the show. And we just began working on it. And I remember there was one rehearsal, and I looked at them, I said, it's a little off to this. They said, yeah, yeah, we we weren't on our game. And that was it. That was the only time in that entire process that it wasn't 100%. And they were 100% every performance. So I'm very proud of that. But sometimes you look at something like that and you don't know, is it what you did as a director or was it knowing when to get out of the way of the people who knew what they were doing? Next to Normal is a musical that really is a play. Yes. It's not choreographic necessarily. So it was less, you know, I mean, I've done things that, you know, were very pageantry that required every moment to be blocked. Evita, Les Mis pieces like that, Sweeney Todd, that have to be blocked within an inch of their lives. You can't just say, well, find where you want to stand, find yes. what you want to do. You know, that's chaos. And I'm very proud of those productions too. But Next to Normal and Boys Next Door were two of the productions I looked at and I felt very strongly about the work. Agnes of God, which I did on our second mm-hmm. stage, which is another beautiful experience. Um, 
But again, you know, you work with a play of that caliber, of that power. I would have to say there are two one acts though that I've done downstairs, you know, as part of the festival. And one was called Flying Low, and it was a fictional account of the man who flew the plane into the Alps. And it was written by a man named Jules Tasca, and I, I've done several of his plays downstairs. He's a very brilliant writer. This was a 12 to 14 minute play. And once I figured out what I wanted to do with it, I never changed the blocking. And that's the only time I can say that with anything I've done. And it was, I walked away saying this, if I never directed another play again, this play flying low was fine for me, this to be my legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so every now and then we have those moments, but you know, I like the process. I, I like the work. Perfect example uh, is the offstage online. I love rehearsing the plays. I love mm-hmm. working on the scripts with the actors. When it comes to taping, that's not my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> Fortunately, I have Melissa Troxler, who is just the most amazing stage manager, who stays on top of everything, and Tim Haggerty, who's doing all our editing, so I can rely on them to really you know, dig into the, the technical aspects that are not my strength. Mm-hmm. I like... I like the working. I like the diving into the play and the character and working with the actors. I, I'm not the most technically inclined director. Who is? Um, you know, I <laughs> out of um, the uh, plays that you've, you know, seen, worked on, what is there any unifying qualities that sort of um, bind shows that you look for, scripts that impassion you? No. I, I don't think there is anything I look at and say this play speaks to me, you know, that there's one thing in every play. I think different plays bring different things to us. Um, I've done Joseph three times. Mm -hmm. Do I think Joseph is the greatest play in the world? No. Um, But each, my first two productions I thought were really good, but I realized I had done the same production twice. So this last time around, I set out to find a new Joseph. Mm Mm-hmm. And I took a whole different approach with the brothers uh, right from the entrance. I made them much more tribal. I okay. had them coming and beating the hell out of each other. Gotcha. It was not this stage or the cowboy entrance or all of that. It was these guys who you understand are capable of doing to Joseph what they do. Sure. So here it is. I've done this three times over 25 years, but I went to something that I don't think is maybe art Mm-hmm. found something new in it. I always say I would rather see a terrific production of Greece than a mediocre production of All My Sons. Sure. You know, I just, I'm more interested in that, you know, and again, I think All My Sons is one of the most beautiful plays ever written, but I don't want to see it done poorly, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. either for that matter. So I, every play is something different and there are fun things that I've enjoyed doing and there were serious things that I couldn't wait to do, and I realized I totally missed the boat. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Shakespeare director. I directed one full-length Shakespeare play, and to be honest, I don't think I did a terribly good job on it. But I don't think I served the production the way another director would. What was the uh, what was the show? Romeo and Juliet. Gotcha. And I had a very good cast. 
and they knew what they were doing and we had a beautiful set and lights and all of that the costumes were wonderful and it was exactly what i asked for but i don't think i imparted enough to that cast hmm imparted is an interesting choice of word uh as as far as directing is concerned (laughs) well you know i don't think they got from the director what they deserved you know, I, I didn't mistreat them. Sure. <laughs> I paid attention. I gave notes where I could, but I really don't think I served them or served the production. Mm-hmm. And I felt that way about various productions over the years. I mean, I direct a lot between main stage and children's theater and one acts and touring shows. I can be directing up to 15, 16 shows a season. Goodness. So not everyone is going to be a jewel. <laughs> Understood. I mean, out of all of the actors that you, you work with then on a seasonal basis, what are some qualities you look for as a director in the actors you're working with? I look for actors who are present in the process, who come in with ideas or find ideas when they're going along and aren't afraid to take a risk. I mean, that bravery is a wonderful thing. By the same token, I look for the professionalism of people who come in who are prepared, who are on time, and don't make their problems everybody else's problems. Mm-hmm. And I have a real issue with that. And people who work with me know that. I have no problem with the struggle, but don't blame other people. Don't be difficult because you're frustrated. It creates a very tense atmosphere. And if anybody is going to create a tense atmosphere, it should be me. <laughs> That's more so life advice than acting advice. I think kind of pretty much my whole life is doing theater. Mm-hmm. I don't really do much else. I, I'm wondering then um, if there was a different path, a different profession or, or job that you, you would undertake, what would that be beyond uh, outside of the theater spectrum? Well, considering I have no skills to do anything else, <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, I told you that the first play I ever directed was first grade. Yes. I knew I knew then that this is what I wanted to do. I mean, I, of course, like all young people, I set out to be an actor. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's where we start. And I did act for a long time. And my training is rooted in acting. Um, but I think I'm a better director than I am an actor. Hmm. And I, I think people who've seen me act would agree with that. Um <laughs> You know, and I've done a good bit of writing, mostly children's theater, but some other things. Uh, I do enjoy writing, and I actually, over the last few years, I've done a lot of prose writing, a lot of short stories, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of something new to me, and I, I take a great deal of pleasure in that. So if I could pick an alternate profession, you know, I, I would love to write and write more, but I also know that's, you know, like saying I'd like to be king, you know? <laughs> I mean, writing, people who are writers are extraordinary. You know, great writing fascinates me because I know my writing can be good at best. Hmm. Uh, Great writing is something on a higher level. And I'm a reader. You know, I I read a lot. Um, And I marvel at it. I, I marvel at great writing on any level, whether it's somebody has submitted something for the one acts or off stage online or you know it's a new novel that has come out so i mean 
you know, I've often thought it'd be nice to work in a library because then you're surrounded by books all day. There you are. Um, so I guess tr talking a little bit about the nonprofit sector, what's the most difficult challenge about uh, producing shows in the nonprofit sector of theater? Money. <laughs> I should have known that. You know what? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's money. I mean, nothing solves something like throwing money at it. Uh, <laughs> You know, yes, uh, and we're very lucky. We have a very good-sized budget. You know, we receive grants, we get donations. Our ticket sales are very good, but it's still it's still a day-to-day -day struggle in any not-for-profit, in any artistic endeavor. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be an issue of is there enough money to take this to the next level? And I suppose that's one of the things that's great about Christmas Carol is everything is a capital investment. Mm -hmm. When we went to build the new set, we knew we were building a set that was going to last us years, sure. so we're going to go for it. We're going to put the money into it. When we invest in costume pieces, we know many of these will be used for years. Mm -hmm. It's very different than when you're saying, well, this show's going to run for six weeks, and then we're never going to have any use for any of these set pieces again. Flats can be deconstructed, light boxes can be reused, but there are things you build for shows, they're a one-off and gone. So you always have to look at how much money you're going to put into something that's going to run a short amount of time. That said, we have a staff and a board that is very supportive of our choices artistically, and we never want to cheat that. You were in rehearsal for Steel Magnolias. Um, Randy Parsons had worked with uh, the director, Mary Powers, and they had come up with a really beautiful set. Mm -hmm. Was it going to be cheap? No, of course not, because it has to look real. Sure. Nobody wants to stylized steel magnolias. You want to feel that you are in that beauty shop, in that closed-in carport. Mm -hmm. It is about the reality. It is about the right chairs. It is about the right sinks. So you put the money into that because that is what we owe play because it's a brilliant beautiful play it's what we owe the cast which is an absolutely brilliant cast and i can't wait for that production to happen and that's what we owe the audience that is coming to see it i'm sure it also affects the the type of work you're you're selecting each year as the artistic director too and some shows you can stretch creativity on like shoestring budgets and others i'm sure may other productions may be picked for the commercial value as well, well yes mm -hmm. the majority of what we do is uh picked uh with a commerce in mind you know mm -hmm. will this sell we have done some artistic things over the years knowing going in that it was a risk laramie project was mm -hmm. a perfect example we also didn't put a lot of money into it because i felt it didn't need it i sure. wanted an empty stage and i wanted pieces but that doesn't mean we didn't put money into it to make those pieces the right pieces but no, we do, especially with the big shows, the big musicals. No, we're not going to pick something that is a risk. And then you find that everything is a risk. Mm -hmm. You know, there are very few shows that are guarantees. Very, very, very few. Um, so yes, of course, we're always saying, will this sell? Because the flip side is, yes, you, you, you want to do something artistic, but... If nobody comes to see it, what have we satisfied? So sure. actors playing to an empty house, mm -hmm. they're not getting the response that they deserve. So 
again, I would rather see a great production of a commercial play that is done with integrity that an audience comes to see and finds joy in than something that is done for art for art's sake that nobody comes to see. I, I don't think theater exists in a vacuum. And I know that's not the most artistic comment and perhaps not the most popular artistically, <laughs> but I do feel an obligation that way. And it's also, it's the difference of our upstairs and downstairs. Mm-hmm. Upstairs, there are 400 and something seats. Downstairs, when we do the one acts, there are 90 seats. So I will do things that are edgier, darker, shall we say more adult downstairs, knowing the risk that we'll have a smaller house. Mm-hmm. But by and large, I still want a good house downstairs because the actors deserve it. Mm-hmm. That being said, are there any shows, um, artistic risks maybe that you haven't tackled yet that you'd like to? There are shows that I've seen that I marvel at that I think are absolutely brilliant and beautiful and extraordinary, but they're things that I know I will never be able to put up because it's just not the right context. There have been some things I've seen lately that I thought were absolutely beautiful that I can't wait till we can do. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen. Sure. I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful play. Uh, it reminds it's sort of like a teenage next to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I'd like to do and I know we can do, but it's also a bit of a risk. Yes, there are, there are plays I dreamed about earlier in my career that I had always hoped to do, but my career has gone a different direction and I don't bemoan that. Mm-hmm. I don't regret that because I've gotten to do a lot and I've gotten to work every day in the theater. Oof. And that's a gift. How many people can say that? Um, you know, the pandemic brings that into clear focus because, you know, I've been out of rehearsal in the rehearsal space for live theater for nine months for the first time in over 30 years. Wow. I mean, please, I barely seen anything. Yeah. You know, so it gives us an awareness and appreciation of what we have. So yes, maybe I, I, a year ago would have been complaining, oh Lord, I've got to direct another production of The Adventures of Peter Rabbit. <laughs> but what I wouldn't do to be rehearsing The Adventures of Peter Rabbit right now. <laughs> I understand the big picture. We're in a worldwide pandemic and people's health and well-being are the priority. And if it means that's why we're closed for this amount of time and longer, that's important. So when we do open our doors, it's a safe space. So I guess the my next question, when those doors are open again, what are some, in Theater 3 space, and places like Sam, Smithtown, what are some trends that you hope to see for the next 30 years of, of Long Island Theater? What trends do I want to see? There has been spotty cooperation amongst the theaters. Mm-hmm. We've tried multiple times to create a consortium. Mm-hmm. We've actually had some meetings. It tends to fall apart. I would really like to see a little bit more acknowledgement. I mean, it's very hard because we're all vying for the same new plays and there's a pecking order of who gets what, when, 
and it's very hard to say, I won't do this so you can do it. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be the ninth person on the block to do the show. Sure. But I think a freer discussion amongst the theaters will create a better feeling. I, I mean, I have, I am fortunate that I have a good relationship with pretty much all of the artistic directors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've reached out to them uh, for help, for advice, and they've felt free to reach out to me. There are some theaters that don't get along as well with other theaters and people who disagree about things. I think maybe coming back, we can get past it a little bit. I, I think that would be a really valuable thing. And really across the board, from you know the equity theaters to the, the non-equity paying theaters to the smaller theaters, the, you know, that we're all very different. We all offer different things. Acknowledgement is the first step. Mm-hmm. We will never be able to share things, you know, we, we, we can't, because our theaters are different spaces, this and that. But I, I think if we could coexist a little bit better, it's not a bad idea. We're going to try. And I've spoken to some of the ADs about that. And there is an interest. But again, when we come back, when we're all opening our doors, we're all going to be scrambling. Sure. It's going to be about making sure we have the cast, the sets, and an audience that is ready to come back. Absolutely. It does sound, though, from my very small experience in the community thus far in comparison, it does sound like there is a sense of hope that that camaraderie and that, that, that this pandemic has sort of given us a reset button and uh, highlighted the value of community in the nonprofit sector. So I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that down the line we'll see that. Well, I'm glad you're hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist, mm-hmm. but it, it's a good thing to hope. And we have to remember, we have to really think about the people who've been on the front lines of this, you know, the doctors, the people, the nurses, the technicians in the hospital, the people working in the hospitals, and the people working in the grocery stores, and all, you know, the people who have not stopped, and we need to step back and remember that maybe we need to take ourselves a little less seriously, you know, not that we don't have value, I, I believe we do have value, entertainment has value, art has value, but there are people who've done extraordinary things. And I think that has to be honored as we go back to our work. Absolutely. And I actually love ending it on that sentiment. I think that was a beautiful way to transition into um, some parting words. Is there anything you'd like to pitch? I know uh, this offstage online series, I definitely like to hear a little bit more in some details about that as we wind down. Offstage online, we started uh, last May was our first posting. We were doing two a week. November, we've gone down to one a week. Uh, we're coming up to our 60th uh, offstage online play. They're something that connects to our one-act festival. Mm-hmm. When I was looking around looking for something that I thought Theater 3 could do to stay connected to both our acting community and to our audience community, I felt that would be the ve- best way to go. And so that's, it's been a wonderful experience. We're going to continue it uh, as long as the theater is closed. We've gotten, actually, I'm coming up on 1,200 submissions. Oh, holy um, smokes. They range, of course, like all submissions. Sure. Um, 
we're, we're going to continue doing it. It's a great diversion. And they're short pieces. They, you know, they run from 8 to, to 20 minutes. And you can watch them anytime by going to our YouTube page. And it's a reminder, again, it's art. You know, it's mm -hmm. not about sets, lights, costumes. It's just about a playwright's words and concepts told through really, really fine actors. Fantastic. Um, people can find that on YouTube, on Theater 3's website, on Facebook? Theater 3, yes, you can find it through our Facebook page, our website, or Theater 3 has a YouTube channel. So go to that. And you can also see our story time at the Playhouse, which is another thing we're doing now to stream uh, into classrooms, which is sort of like my answer to Kukla Fran and Ali, Captain Kangaroo, Mr. Rogers. Uh, Doug Quattruck is Dougie J, our host, and it's Dougie J and the Puppet Brigade. Fantastic. And um, it's got morals and lessons, and there's always a guest star uh, who comes and reads a story. Um, coming up, we have a holiday episode uh, called It's a Jolly Holiday with Molly. Uh, Molly is a doll puppet, and she's decided she's made a list of all the things people are going to give her for Christmas. <laughs> and it's about her learning that Christmas is not just about giving but it's about giving of ourselves and she learns that lesson. And I actually come in as a guest at the end and I've written an adaptation of a Christmas carol called Scrooge's Christmas, which is like a 12 minute telling for young audiences. So that that's coming up and we're, we're streaming into classrooms with that. And we'll probably make that available as well for the general public. So we're doing some things, yes. um, but of course my great goal is to elevate Dougie Doug Quattrick as Dougie J, the next in sync, you know? <laughs> I really hope it goes viral. I feel it has potential on the name alone. <laughs> we're having fun with it. It's called Storytime at the Playhouse, and the puppets are absolutely beautiful. They were made by a guy named uh, Taz Farron, who worked for us, and they're absolutely beautiful puppets. And Stephen Uline is our puppeteer and does all the voices. So in one episode, he does six puppets and six completely different voices. He's really wonderful. It's, it, they're fun. They're, it's a fun experience, um, and we're using a Sling Studio, so actually it's a three-camera setup. Wow. You know, with wipes and cuts. And Melissa Troxler is our director of photography. She learned how to do the Sling Studio, and she runs it like a TV studio. That's so, amazing. It was a lucky day Melissa Troxler walked through our door. <laughs> Absolutely. Mr. Sanzel, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to talk to me for a bit today. It was so informative and so fascinating to hear about a little uh, piece of your life story. Um, and yeah, th thank you again. It's It's been a, an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Ms. Bowen. And uh, let me be the, maybe the first, but certainly not the last, to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thank you. You are the first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Someday soon, we all will be together. If the fates allow, until then. Yeah.